From the Edwin Cardinal O'Brien Pastoral Center in Washington, D.C., home base for the Archdiocese for the Military Services USA, this is Catholic Military Life, a podcast of the Archdiocese. I'm your moderator, Taylor Henry. And for this edition, very special guest, the boss, my boss, the Vicar General of the AMS, Monsignor Anthony R. Frontiero, STD. Monsignor Frontiero, welcome. Thank you, Till. It's good to be with you. It's great to have you, sir. And uh, we're recording this on, uh, what is it, uh, October 16th, uh, 2023. You uh, took over as uh, Vicar General and Moderator of the Courier back in July. Right. So uh, you've been here a few months now, had a chance to get your toe wet. Mm, I would say. <laughs> so uh, you have quite an impressive background. We have a lot to talk about in a half hour. So let's start with your ordination. Back in 1991, you were ordained for the Diocese of Manchester, New Hampshire. How did you discover your vocation, and what were the influences that led you to the priesthood? Well, Taylor, I would say this, that I was felt called to the priesthood at a very young age. My family was always very strongly Catholic. We we went to Mass all the time. I was an altar server. I was involved in Catholic youth organizations throughout. And I think it was in high school where I finally found very uh, felt very convicted. And my father is the one who took me to see the vocation director at that young age, uh, Father George Ham at the time. And I remember Father Ham saying, well, you're very young, but you know, we'll stay with you, carry on, go to university, finish high school and do all that. But we're not gonna abandon you. And sure enough, he stayed with me. He did not say to me, well, come back when you grow up. He stayed with me, and as a result of that sort of accompaniment, uh, I felt very connected to the church and to the diocese all through my high school and college years and to the point where after I graduated from uh, college, I went to the University of New Hampshire, I uh, went immediately to the seminary uh, and uh, I, I felt called at a very young age, I really did. Uh, and uh, I credit uh, our Blessed Mother for her intercession on my behalf because when I was young, we spent a lot of time in Gloucester, Massachusetts, where my father is from. And there's a parish there, a Portuguese parish called Our Lady of Good Voyage. It's the Shrine of the Fishermen because I come from a family of Italian and Portuguese fishermen. And uh, I used to go to Mass there every day as a little boy, all by myself. Eight years old, I would walk to Mass because my family had a home up the hill from the church. And every day I would go down to Mass and felt uh, the Lord calling me from a very young age. And uh, it's just been a beautiful experience. You have any brothers, sisters? I do, I have two older sisters and a younger brother. I see. So um, fast forward from, uh, so you uh, entered seminary, became a priest, um, ordained in 1991. In 1999, just eight years later, you served from 1999 to 2002. You served as diplomatic attache to the Holy See Mission to the United Nations in New York. How did you step into that role? What was that like? Well, that was very interesting because uh, the bishop had sent me for further studies here at Catholic University. Uh, I was ordained six years, and he, he said, go, go get a license in moral theology. And the thought at the time was that I would sort of serve as a liaison with the diocese, with our Catholic 
hospitals in New Hampshire. So I got a degree in Catholic health ethics at uh, Catholic U, a licentiate. And then the bishop who ordained me sent me to school, and then he died, Bishop Leo O'Neill. He died as soon as I came to Washington. And then the new bishop was, was in place. I was finishing my degree at Catholic U, and all of a sudden I got a phone call from the Apostolic Nuncio to the United Nations, at the time Archbishop Renato Martino. And uh, it was kind of a surprise. He called me first and said in his Italian accent, uh, Father, you will come now and work for the Holy See at the United Nations. And I, to be honest with you, thought it was sort of a joke because my bishop had already told me what my assignment was gonna be in the diocese. So I was surprised and I, I said, well, I, I don't know what to say. I think I've already got an assignment in my diocese. So he said, no, no. He said, I'm going to call your bishop. And, um, and so that's what happened. And the bishop called me later and said, yes, it's true. You, you should go to New York and serve in this capacity. And I was very unfamiliar with that terrain. I had no experience um, in that world. But I, I stepped into it, and it, I, I, I became... Uh, sort of a negotiator. The, the, the work was negotiating in the UN forums and the um, different groups on mostly human rights issues. So I became uh, the Holy See uh, point person along with another American colleague on the issues of human rights at the United Nations. And I served there for three years and it was a three-year term, but then it was extended a bit beyond that so I could be a part of the Holy See delegation to the, um, the World Summit on Climate, which took place in Johannesburg in that year, 2002. Any particular stories stand out from that three years or so? That you oh, said? there were many stories, Taylor. The many stories of um, the Holy See working diligently to try to protect the rights of, of human life in all its stages. I can tell you right now my, my assessment of that work, and I have to say I'm grateful for that experience because it gave me a bird's eye view of what is happening in the world, the different agendas that are at work, particularly in the developed world, right? Uh, the, the, the push that was there at the time and now has sort of come to full flower in, in all of the the death-dealing things we people do to each other, right? The, I, I have to say with great um, happiness that I don't think there's a universal right to abortion, for example, precisely because of the Holy See's interventions at the United Nations. I think we have been a vanguard there, and I think it continues um, for that particular issue. Now, there's a lot of other issues that, that that are constantly on the table and where the Holy See uh, is able to stand uh, and be counted as, uh, as um, being a vanguard for the best of what it means to be human, what it means to safeguard human rights, the right to religious freedom, the rights of the family, and all these things that we see, that we struggle with. I, I've always felt that the United Nations was sort of a, uh, an international project on a common morality in, in it doesn't always work as effectively as everyone would like it to, but it's something, and I think it's something that is better than nothing. I think particularly uh, because when, when we can come together and talk about what is of most 
important in the life of human existence. But of course we see human beings are what they are and, and, and we don't seem to learn too much from history. Clearly we, we see that now with wars breaking out and the destruction of human life and the wanton destruction of uh, so much of everything. So I, I, I think that the, the, the need is always present. It's an ever-present need. And the Vatican and our church has something very important to contribute. I was going to say, uh, your experience at the UN, I'm sure, informs your judgment on you know what you see taking place in the news over in Ukraine and now in uh, oh, yes. Gaza. Very much so. Uh, so from 2006 to 2011, moving ahead now, you were an official with the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace at the Vatican. What were your responsible responsibilities there? Uh, and you live in Rome at the time? or Yes. Yes. So I finished my term at the United Nations uh, in, in um, 2002, and then I went back to my diocese and was a pastor of a beautiful parish called St. Pius X in Manchester, and um, also became vocation director for a second time around and did some other work there at the chancery. But then at a certain point, it was in 2005, that the bishop called me in and informed me that the Holy See was asking that I go to Rome to work at the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace. And so the bishop uh, thought that it would be good for me to go uh, his his stock answer to me was, well, if the Holy See is asking, the the disposition should be yes. <laughs> so, uh, so I went to Rome and I discovered that there I would be um, again uh, doing more of the at a different level of what I was doing in New York at the Vatican Embassy there. So in, in New York, I would. Pre- go to meetings and negotiate uh, documents, um, plans of actions, and all the rest at the UN. And my reports then were sent to the Vatican. Now, being in Vatican, I was receiving those reports from my successor there in New York. And, um, and I would also draft uh, speeches and then travel the world to represent the Vatican at various diplomatic meetings on human rights issues. So although I worked for the Pontifical Council, I was engaged very, very often by the Secretary of State of the Vatican, the Secretary for Relations with States, to go in the name of the Holy See to represent uh, the, the, the Church on these very, very important issues. So for example, I, I was the representative for human rights uh, at the Council of Europe for those years for their Committee on Human Rights. I went to the Organization of Security and Cooperation for Europe, OSCE, which is a, a regional group uh, of 56 countries or so, including the U.S., that would uh, deal every year with uh, critical human rights issues. So the right to religious freedom, the right to life, the rights of the family, economic rights, and so on and so forth. Because, you know, uh, one of the things I learned to appreciate most about our church while I was in that ministry, was that the church, our church, does not have political uh, aspirations per se. We're not, we don't have military interests, clearly, unless you're talking about the Swiss Guard and they won't do much for you. Uh, And then um, we don't have uh, economic interests per se. 
our, our interest is the human person. And in fact, the Holy See, the Catholic Church is an expert in humanity. The Catholic Church has been, the Pope has been sending and receiving diplomats worldwide for as long as, long as we can remember. So we have a, a very credible place at the table. And, and so my work was to uh, further that mission and bring to the fore among our diplomatic colleagues and lawmakers, uh, you know, the, the various principles that should inform the way we live and the way we form laws and societies. And, and the, the, the task was always to make it uh, convincing. Now, you know, many people don't share our faith, but I think it's true, and we've, we say this, we, we believe this, that God has endowed all of us with reason and faith uh, we, we have a heart to know and, and love and, and minds to discern well. We have natural moral law written in our hearts. So we have the capacity, everyone has the capacity to do the right and the good thing. And so we would appeal to that uh, dimension in, in everybody's life. And I found that if we make the case in a reasonable way uh, and in a substantive way, that most actors around the table would actually respect what we say and believe. They may not always agree, but they respect that. And if we can get respect, well, maybe then we have a, we have a shot at helping win minds and hearts. And let's face it, Taylor, um, the way beyond the violence, the destruction, is, is, is conversion, right? It's, it's all about um, changing minds and hearts minds and hearts that will go from um, dehumanizing people and societies to humanizing them and realizing that life is precious. Now, you are a moral theologian. You uh, have a PhD from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Angelicum in Rome, and a licensed from the Catholic University of America where you are an adjunct professor for the Master of Arts degree program in human rights and a fellow of the Institute for Human Ecology. How does moral theology differ from moral philosophy? Well, moral, philo moral theology is uh, the study of what is right and what is wrong in the light of faith, I would say, in the short answer. Moral philosophy is the study of right and wrong in terms of the way we just think about things. So both are really necessary uh, for a complete understanding of how we ought to live as people. And um, so that's, that's just the short answer there. I see. So is it possible to be a moral atheist or an uh, immoral Christian? It is possible to be a moral atheist because an atheist can, with right reason, understand what is right and what is wrong and what, how one ought to live. Um, and, and atheists, of course, are capable of being good persons, right, and good people. Um, an immoral Christian, well, I would say that it is possible to be an immoral Christian, and we see that. We see people who espouse Christian beliefs but who do not live uh, accordingly. And so, for whatever reason, some people either don't have the formed conscious enough to live the right way according to Christian principles, the sacred scriptures, our traditions, 
uh, or others choose uh, quite willingly to abandon those Christian principles. And we see that. We see it all over the place. They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Yes, absolutely. Let's talk about Augustine's theory of just war. It's a guiding light for U.S. political leaders and leaders around the world and the U.S. military. Uh, but like any doctrine, just war theory can be twisted all out of context to meet worldly political objectives, such as appears to be the case in Ukraine and now Gaza, Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, where to draw the line on what's a just war or an unjust war? Well, I think the principles of just war theory as articulated uh, stand. I think today, because of all kinds of other threats, you know, the, the threat of cyber threat, terrorism, and chemical warfare, for example, have changed the terrain, if you will, of how to discern what those threats are and how they are going to affect populations. I think that the principles of Catholic just war theory stand, they're timeless. How we are able to uh, discern, you know, proportionality, for example. I mean, these are these, just war theory can help. I mean, uh, we should always be uh, very, very keen on avoiding civilian casualties in a conflict. But I think there, there, you know, the church has always held that uh, uh, we have a right to defend ourselves. And what form that defense takes is critical. Huh? That's where uh, you can see whether or not the mandate of Christ to be peacemakers and love one another is being violated or not. I think there are ways in negotiation and uh, um, you know, diplomatic solutions are always preferable, always, to... Uh, violence and war and destruction. How has Vatican II affected Catholic teaching on morality? We hear a lot about that now. There's this, uh, I don't want to, it's not a schism, but a, you know, debate among conservatives and liberals uh, post-Vatican II. How did Vatican II affect morality as the church defines it, or did it? Well, I think Second Vatican Council really expanded our minds and hearts to to the way in which we think about uh, morality. In other words, prior to Vatican II, the church institutionally anyway, I think relied heavily on the moral manuals. So in other words, um, there, was a, there was a confessional tool for priests, a, a manual. So you had a corresponding penance to a sin that was confessed, and that was sort of the extent, there was sort of a checks and ba- or a box checking exercise. But I think the Vatican Council gave it more substance and, and um, breadth to understand more that, you know, you know, Christian moral life is about a relationship. I remember uh, years ago, George Weigel wrote a great book on um, Catholicism, and he, he said, so I'm paraphrasing it now, but he said, you know, when you used to look up uh, Catholic morality on the Internet, you, uh, it would come up with the word no. <laughs> but he said, actually, Catholic morality equals a big yes. And, and, I, and we only get that, what George was saying, if we understand the relationship that we are to have with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, God loves us more than we deserve to be loved. He, he saved us. And you know, there's a power in understanding that kind of relationship, that kind of unreserved love, which can kind of drive you into understanding 
that love, when it is real, makes demands on our lives. It shapes how we think and how we act, and there's a good thing to that. And anyone who is in a loving relationship understands that and wouldn't have it any other way. So I think the Second Vatican Council helped to you know, uh, flesh out the requirements of a relationship between God and his people, a relationship that is marked by love and mercy and forgiveness that should shape our hearts in ways that help us to respond to that love um, with more generosity and more fidelity. What about the influence of Pope Francis? We have the Synod underway uh, in Rome where discussions are taking, a play, taking place about the church's path going forward. Um, do you see any, uh, any effect of, of these discussions on how the church defines morality in the future? Well, I think Pope Francis has very much been uh, you know, a proponent of that relational aspect which should help shape our minds and hearts. I think it is true that um, while we have uh, teachings and principles and doctrines and catechism, we've got all of that together. I think it's true we can no longer stand on our laurels as a church. We're losing ground. We really are. Legislating morality, as it were, you know, is, you know, has lost its traction, I think. So I think the Holy Father has tried to say, well, what, let's look at this differently. So uh, I think that's part of the project here. I, you know, I think it's very important on the same token, though, as our Archbishop um, Broglio has shared with us here, is that while we are asking questions and, and, and wondering and sometimes uh, with great anxiety, questioning what we do in this or that situation now in this new landscape where there's so many other questions uh, and we're walking together. It's, it's important to remember that we're not just walking together in sort of a horizontal domain. There's a vertical dimension. It's walking with Christ. And that is important and critical as we discern these very, very important issues. It's not as simple as just saying, well, oh, these are difficult questions. These are agonizing issues. Well, our, our, our answer as a church to what really ails us, if you will, cannot possibly be, cannot possibly be, then just do what makes you feel good. I mean, and I think that's, there's a proposition out there uh, from popular society wishing desperately that the church would just say that. <laughs> And we can't, because it's not honest. It's not true. Some other denominations have. Yes. But we won't go there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, as you mentioned, you served as a pastor in a number of parishes in New Hampshire, including St. Joseph Cathedral in Manchester, where you were the rector, and St. Pius X in Manchester and St. Matthew in Wyndham. How do you think your pastoral experiences will inform and guide your service as Vicar General and Moderator of the Curia here at the Archdiocese for the Military Services? Well, I'm hoping that my, my experience as a pastor will help, help me um, serve here with a great pastoral heart. I, I enjoy being a pastor very much. I, I have to say that of all my assignments, uh, being a pastor of a parish has been the most meaningful, the most rewarding. It's, it's walking with the people of God in those most important moments of their lives, in moments of great joy, 
baptisms, weddings, and moments of great sorrow, sickness, and funerals. And uh, being with people, that's one of the things that attracted me to the priesthood. Because I had an insight from my own parish priest when I was a boy that the joy of priesthood is about walking with people in their most important moments of life. And you're admitted into their lives uh, precisely because you are a priest. And what a privilege that is. Uh, the bishop who ordained me had a great definition of priesthood, very simple. He said, you know, priest uh, is, is called to bring people into the light of God's love and let them bask there and then fade away. And uh, I enjoy that kind of life. I enjoy that kind of ministry. And I, I think I can bring that experience here to the AMS as I serve uh, the Archbishop and uh, the community here. Like me, you have not served in the military. Do you consider that an advantage or a disadvantage in your role here as the Vicar General and Moderator of the Curry? Well, I, in some way, I think it's a disadvantage. You know, I mean, I, I isn't fascinated as I am by the service that particularly our chaplains uh, have given themselves to. Um, I, I feel at a bit of a disadvantage, not really understanding, uh, you know, what they have to go through day in and day out. I think there are some very similar uh, threads, though. I mean, they're all priests, and we're brother priests together. So a lot of the the ministry that they carry out is is uh, ministry that we all do as priests. We 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 walk with people. The way in which our chaplains walk with people is different, though. Uh, they're, they're, they're working in, I think, much more uh, stressful situations at times and uh, uh, with a lot more anxiety. I mean, most of our troops are away from home, away from family. So there's a unique aspect to uh, military chaplaincy. Uh, and I, you know, I would hope I can learn from that as well, all of which is to say that I, I think there's a mutual support and um, learning that can take place. A lot of acronyms to learn. That's for sure, yes. <laughs> That'll take a lifetime. <laughs> uh, okay, so any, uh, any uh, final thoughts uh, on uh, your, uh, you've been here now four months and uh, uh, running the show here at the Archdiocese for the Military Services, your parting thoughts? I would just like to say that um, my, my observations so far are just uh, observations of great um, uh, joy and admiration. I, I admire the Archbishop. I, I've, I've observed that the chaplains, having, you know, we're doing these convocations now, and what I marvel at, and I'm very pleased to see, is how, how the chaplains, all the priests, really admire their Archbishop. Uh, he is a clear, substantial leader and uh, very much appreciated by his priests uh, because they know he has their back. And that is really um, a joy to see and to behold here. And, and, and all of the personnel here at the Archdiocese too, very fine people, dedicated, energetic, and uh, mission-driven. So I, I, it's a pleasant, pleasant and very joyful experience. Monsignor Anthony R. Frontiero, STD, thank you for talking to me on your new role as 
Vicar General and Moderator of the Curia here at the Archdiocese for the Military Services. Thank you, Taylor. Catholic Military Life is a podcast of the Archdiocese for the Military Services USA, erected by Pope St. John Paul II in 1985 to provide for the free exercise of Catholic faith in the U.S. military, VA medical centers, and the government's civilian workforce beyond U.S. borders. 1.8 million American Catholics worldwide depend on the Archdiocese and its endorsed chaplains for pastoral care. For more information, visit millarch.org. The Archdiocese for the Military Services USA, serving those who serve.